as a consumer, you're like, I want season two. I want the sequel. I want the next thing. And then as a creator, you're like, but I'm bored. Hey, everybody, welcome to episode 393 of Coffee with Butterscotch, the game dev comedy podcast, Butterscotch Shenanigans. I'm Seth, and I'm the games programmer. I'm Adam, and I'm the webs programmer. I'm Sam, and I'm the artist. And this is a show where we talk about life, business, and working in the games industry. Today's December 9th, 2020. Before we get started, we have a warning there's going to be profanity on this show. And we'd also like to thank our recurring supporters from moneygrab.bscotch.net. Thank you very much for your monthly donations. It helps keep our microphone tubes full of voice juice. Yup. We have almost uh, cleared 2022. Yeah. It's, it still feels like 2020. Yeah, it does. The future oh. arrived in 2020 <laughs> and then just stayed here and became the past, you know? I think it's also that that because we launched Level Head, like right around the time that the COVID lockdowns yeah, started. it was like two months later. Yeah. It was, it was one month later. It was right after. Yeah, end of April. Like, yeah. like we, we locked down, we went home, launched our game. Uh, then we worked on, we, we did some patching and stuff, but then we started... Crashlands 2 at the end of 2020. Um, yeah, fall and 2020. Then, and it's like, it's kind of weird because, you know, I think our memory of time is, it's it's sort of landmark based, right? Like there's big moments that you kind mm-hmm. of can identify as like, yeah, this, this, oh yeah, that was 2015 because X, Y, Z thing happened. Yeah, you're, right? you're sort of putting memories between other memories, right? Of like landmark events. Mm-hmm. So you could say- kind of what the range was where something happened. And it's like, we don't have a lot of the landmarks anymore. And so there's sort of just like a big soup of things that happened. Yeah, because we had like GDC that we would go to. Mm -hmm. We had uh, Shenanicon that we would run. We had all kinds of stuff, right? Um, And then, you know, our game launches and like we got our office and, you know, like stuff stuff was always happening Mm -hmm. before. And now it's like, we launched Levelhead, started working on Crashlands 2, and we're we're still working on Crashlands 2. And it feels like we just never left 2020. Like, yeah. we're just still we're, in it. Oh, anyway. Yeah. Which is funny, Let's, too, right? Because, like, the, the work on it has changed dramatically over that course, right? And, like, our approach to it has changed. We've hit various milestones with it, you know? Um, but oh, yeah. Because all of it is a little more gradual, um, than like literally going to a place for a one weekend event that happens once a year or whatever. Right? The, the routine is, is reinforcing the things that we're doing. Like us, us, for example, you know, working on like building the game changer and that kind of stuff. That's still just like get up every day, go to the computer, collaborate, program, you know, it's, we're doing something different, but we're using the same routines the same place. and, and yeah. methods to, to do it. And so it doesn't feel like something huge has happened it has i think um but yeah it's there's no disruption i think that's like that's where that's like what your memories are kind of formed around is like when something when something changes right you, Sam, you, you moved you know and that's yeah, a i moved thing. in the middle of this stuff and that was i mean that gave me i think another bit of extra kind of memory capacity for feeling out the time of all this stuff being yeah, so those, those, in there. 2021, right? Correct. Was, yeah. Summer 2021. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which was a year and a half ago. Yeah. It's weird. So. <laughs> yeah. 
It's all we're approaching uh, a thousand days of COVID. Oh, we're just like, are we gonna have a? Are we gonna have a party? Is there? (laughs) Are we gonna? Is there a birthday party of some party where everybody just gets vaccinated? Sort of. I wish if we had that kind of a party, then we wouldn't have a thousand. (laughs) Wouldn't be in this situation. Well, I do have uh, a, a, a good segue for you on this yeah. because it's sort of talking about like a Groundhog Day situation of being like, things are definitely happening, but, you know, the routines are largely the same around getting that stuff to happen. So even though you're doing different things, it's all through the same context. And so you start getting this weird like, have I been here before? Am I still am I trapped in this? Am I real? Am I real? <laughs> yeah. What is happening? So <clears throat> this can happen on the game design side too, okay? Because of iteration. You know, mm-hmm. we talk a lot about making uh, you know games on this podcast, mostly what we talk about. And a big part of that is this idea of iterating quickly is generally the only method by which you can effectively make a good game. Right. And it's because games are so weird as big interactive things between the designer and the person playing that also then include all sorts of, you know, intense, crazy technological things to even make happen in the first place that what you're trying to marry at the outset is like an initial vision for the game with, you know, gradually getting to the point where that is the experience that the player has. But along the way, you usually find some stuff that from a technical standpoint, you can't do, or you have to do slightly differently. And all these have these echoes into just all the rest of the game content, sometimes in very small ways, but in ways that you still have to regard, right? You have to have to like pay attention to them and be like, yes, I respect this change. So, you know, a lot of our work this past year has been in, in getting uh, the game changer up and running actually because of this exact problem, in the case of Crashlands 2, which was last October. We did some playthrough stuff after getting the game to a point where you could, you know, play it for a while. And coming away with about, you know, a couple pages of, of notes on a legal pad and realizing that implementing all those changes would take months. And that's kind of, you know, that's not good from an iteration standpoint. Well, it would and, take months of programming time and there yeah. would be very little uh, art to, to create or implement at that time. Right. Mm-hmm. So you, you, Sam, would be sort Stuck. of underutilized in your art capacity. Mm-hmm. And also we wouldn't be able to be fixing bugs or doing anything. It would just be just my programming time just going down that list mm-hmm. for a couple of months. Yeah. And so that's where we said, you know what, we're kind of tired of this being a problem for us. So let's fix it. So we did. And that's where the game changer comes in. Right. So it's been the story of the podcast for the last, like, I don't know, years of Year. change, basically. Yeah. Um, and it definitely has worked. And so what's been fun, though, is that now the iteration speed is is just, oh, it's almost sort of instantaneous in terms of saying, oh, we did a playthrough, here's some notes, blah, like the next day, it's all kind of tuned again in a different way. Um, and then for some of these bigger changes where you run into a thing where it's like, oh, systemically, we found out that X is actually the best way for content to be deployed or for the world to be arranged. So let's go back and work through all the content and tune it back up. Um, we're able to do that now on, on the capacity of like a couple of days of, you know, like my time while Seth is still, in this case, running off and doing more cool stuff to enable the future stuff, right? So it's all been working really, really well. Uh, but the end result of this has been that in the last two weeks or so, since we got the progression map put together, uh, which brief reminder for everybody, if you weren't here the last two episodes, that was the thing that basically allowed us to visualize how people were going to be able to move through the content in Crashlands 2 in a way that... Uh, essentially made it more explicit what the paths that a player might be taking would be given how interconnected all the stuff is in the game. A big and how open world it is, right? So because the, the challenge there was given a linear game where you know exactly what's going to happen, well, it's easy to map out, but given a 
open world game where you can take many paths, but all of them can interact with each other at different points and so on is how the hell do you ask a question like, do we have enough stuff going on mm-hmm. after you played the game for three hours if you had gone in this direction, you know, mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Yeah, I think a, a good a good kind of example of the, the two modes is if you're thinking about a game like, you know, original Mario, mm-hmm. uh, you have the levels, right? And then the player just goes from level to level. It's a, and this is, this is the, you know, the opposite of an open world concept, right? Where it's like, it's on rails, you know, exactly where the player's going to be and, and where they're going to go next because you've, that's all that you allow, right? Mm-hmm. So with an open world game, it's, it's a combination of, so you, you create this big open space where the player can go to all these different places and then you fill the world with all these different kinds of things for the player to interact with, tools for the players to use, uh, abilities for them to use on things, things for them to make, things for them to discover, right? And you don't necessarily know where they're going to go next or when they're going to go somewhere mm-hmm. or what they're going to know when they get there, right? Um, but at the same time, things have to be sequential. It's still a video game. So yeah. yeah. So if you think about like your your Minecraft situation, right? Like you you punch trees with your bare fist to get some wood, you turn that into an axe, then you use that axe to chop the tree, and then you use that wood to make more tools, and there's an, there's a clear this then that kind mm-hmm. of a progression. Um, but along the way, the player can do other things and they can skip steps and all of that. And that's a, that's a really simple case if you're just thinking about those tools, but then, you know, how many items are there in Minecraft now? There's hundreds and thousands, right? And so people can make entire working computers in Minecraft and they can do all this stuff, but everything that they do um, goes through some predefined sequence of like, yeah, it'll try to make temporally at some point. Right, you can't yes. just like sort of appear and have everything at once because there's no there's no game at that point. Really, you have like a you basically have a toy, like a sandbox, right? Well, and so, they do have like the creative mode or something where it's like, yeah, I just want like that. I just want like redstone, blah, right? But in the in the normal game, in the survival mode of the game, um, you know, they can't just manifest something. They've got to go through the steps mm-hmm. to get the materials to craft it and whatever. And so it's. You know, it, it's easy to think, oh, well, it's an open world, so anything can happen. Well, anything can happen as long as the necessary prerequisites happened beforehand, right? <laughs> right, And that's the that's the difficulty of plotting yeah. out something like this. Because the trick, the, the reality is that an open world is an illusion in the sense that while it is the case that you might be able to go to most places when you show up, when you appear, uh, if it's the case that you'll be straight up murdered by things at those locations and also there's stuff there that you can't even quite, like it would just take way too long to mine or whatever else for you to bother with uh, while you're being murdered, then it's a very, it's, a, it's an illusion, right? It's, it, but the thing is that illusion gives you a sense of like, wow, I, I could, it feels great to have that sense of choice and that sense of agency. And that's why these open world constructs are so fun to play in and so fun to Well, yeah, build. and the boundaries feel like they make sense and they also feel like if you were clever enough, you could find a way around them. And now, like, because right. you, you feel like you're in control the whole time, you know, I mean, even games like Fallout New Vegas, which is, you know, an open world RPG, kind of a vibe, right? At the very beginning, like, there's a path you can take from where you are to the end, right? Which is like, go just like down this like valley kind of pass, right? From just due east. It's a short trip. And it's nothing like the huge U you have to go in otherwise, right? 
But there's just a just enough high powered. I think it's scorpions that the rad scorpions, you know, that live there. That you're not you can't make it because you don't have you got you're just too weak. You've got no armor. Your weapons suck. You can't. You'll be murdered. You can't do anything. And so, so but you'll be able to make it a little ways, and you can like see like where the end is, you know. And so like you could throw yourself at it a few times before you're like, I think I'll just go the other way, right? But it, it just feels like you made that choice, even though the exactly. game actually did prevent you from doing. It's that. a game of incentives and, and economics. Yeah. So, so yeah, if yeah, you you can take your uh, your wooden axe, right, and then just only ever use wooden axes to chop trees. But it's a huge pain in the ass, right? Mm-hmm. Because it just they they break really fast. They barely do any damage. Blah blah blah. And you can feel the waste of time. happening to you, right? And so you take it upon yourself to say like, how do I get a better axe, right? Because this is taking too long. And so even though, you know, you've decided to go make the next axe and the game isn't demanding that you do it, it, the game's rigged. Like it's set up to make, it's set up to make you want to do the next thing. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that, you know, it's, it's not about putting up invisible walls or whatever. It's about it's about the balance of the game and ma- making it incentivize the player to go down some next path in the in the mm-hmm. open world, right? Yeah, and so the the challenge then basically becomes one of as we're working on Crashlands Two, you know, we've, we're changing up a, a bit from the original. How exactly you get uh, new recipes and stuff like that, um, and it the whole goal of it is to allow for more basically player discovery and player choice over time, and to sort of reinforce the open world nature of the game a little bit better than we did uh, the first time around. But at the end of the day, you still, like while you're trying to say you can go anywhere to anything, again, you have to put a progression path in there for players otherwise. Uh, and then answer questions about like, how how truly gated are you between uh, yeah getting your first axe and getting your second axe? This is the case that like in the original Crash Games, you can't even interact with a thing until you have the second axe. Uh, or is it the case that you can go chop it and it's just a super big pain, right? And so through that process, then you, you make all these little decisions, seemingly little decisions about like how tools can work or whatever else that then uh, end up essentially complicating or not complicating the progression path, turning it more feeling like it's more open or feeling like it's a little more uh, closed. And what our goal hasn't ever been to make like the most open game, especially take the original, open it up more uh, from there, and then just kind of see what we can do. Um, We've been pushing it far enough that it's made it hard to kind of see in the same way as we did before, where it was more procedural and we just kind of knew exactly what was going to happen at each stage. Uh, yada, yada. Well, because I think so, that's where the complication comes from, actually, is the is the interaction of all of this within the world itself, right? Because the reason this, is, this works so uh, easily is not quite the right word, but straightforwardly in a game like mm-hmm. Minecraft, right, is because like everything on the surface is the same. It kind of doesn't matter where you are. And like, as you dig through the layers, like the progression through the layers is well-defined, right? Of like the kind of stuff that's going to happen. So it actually, the part of the world that's open is then randomly distributed in a way such that the fact that it's open doesn't actually impact like how the player is going to move through that space in a way that you should really worry about that much, right? right? Versus a game like Crashlands 2, where the, depending on where you go, like that's where a quest chain starts. That's where a different kind of part of 
the world is where there's a boss fight that you need to do. And we want you to be there at a certain time so that other characters have told you the right information so that you have enough context to know what the hell is happening, you know, when you get to that spot and stuff, right? And so since the world itself can change as it's being designed and what you're doing in the world can change based on, again, design, where the characters are, what, what you're supposed to be doing, that all comes back and interacts with this whole, like, how do you interact with things too, right? Mm-hmm. How do you get to all of those places? And since all of those other components are just like little, at least little strips of linear content, right? Of you do this, then that, and they can interact with each other in different ways. And the, the state the player can be in of what they have or haven't done is so combinatorially complex, but all of it then changes what their experience is going to be and whether it's a designed one or sort of an accidental one, right? Yeah. Um, and that's where the whole challenge comes together of like, how do you then let the player still end up at that spot or how do you prevent them from ending up there but in a way that feels soft? Natural. Right, it feels like, natural. Yeah, yeah. 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 without an invisible wall, basically. Yeah, right. How do you make it feel as though you've chosen the path basically mm-hmm. the entire time when in reality you're in a nicely contained Things such that your experience is good the whole time. So that's kind of what we've been, what the whole point of the game changer and this progression map and, and all that stuff has been is to figure out, okay, we have enough content for a certain kind of chunk of the game at this point. So how do you, how do we best arrange that stuff? And then as we've been iterating on it, the thing that's been happening to me, go back to the ground do- Groundhog Day point, is that for the last two weeks, and I've been rearranging the progression pathway basically through the game and playing it kind of at the end of the week and, and seeing how that next kind of chunk of content has been works in terms of how it integrates the world, et cetera, et cetera. There's also the same thing I did uh, back in like October, I think, before we did our uh, sort of deployable deliverable that we sent over to some business partners and stuff. At that time, we didn't have a progression map. And that was when we were basically getting the onboarding started. So the point of the onboarding then was to corral at that point what was basically this giant ball of content into a respectable order that someone could meaningfully walk through and actually understand what the fuck was going on, right? Um, as opposed to just sort of showing up naked in the woods and then wandering off and not having a very good time. And so I've been doing it's been doing the same th- kind of thing, right? In an attempt to get a better mental picture about what the rest of the game in terms of like what from a templating standpoint, almost like what's this, what does the rest of the game end up shaping out to be? How many things are we going to need, you know, between these two points in the tier? How does that then reflect on the world? And basically using that progression map as a way of, of better driving uh, overall production. Now that we're sort of, we're basically, I think we're slowly in the phase now of transitioning actually from pre-production of like getting everything lined up, all the systems ready to go to actually being able to like really go, uh, but it's been odd because it has been the same question, like the same iterative work on the same part of the system multiple times over the past year, right? In these moments where we're like, okay, we have this new tool up and running. Now we can actually see in this case. Uh, but before it was like, hey, we're going to, we have enough, uh, we have the questing system up and running. So now we can actually do player onboarding as we intend. Cool. Okay. Got to do that sort of version of it. And so it's just this like really weird thing where it's not that you're spinning your wheels, right? It's just that you're, the iteration is the thing, is like, is the measurement that you can use to determine on like the leading side of mm-hmm. game development, if it's possible for you to make something good out of the stuff you have, right? It's like, how, how fast can you iterate on any part of the experience, like from the, the smallest moat of, I don't know, a weapon all the way up to this like whole progression pathway? How quickly can you like kind of spin through it, make changes based on what you've been seeing and thinking about? Um, and yeah, I feel like I've just been in this like really odd <laughs> space. Well, it's, it's like we talked about um, earlier this week, Sam, we were talking about, you know, kind of the, the throwbacks to the original Crashlands and what that development process was like and how it, it did take us, I think it was over a year 
to get the savannah, the first zone of Crashlands mm -hmm. made um, and have like a basic sort of understanding of like the progression path and the kinds of things that the player would, would have, you know, and be able to do. Um, but once we got to the end of the savannah, and this is like no boss fights or anything like that, right? Because we didn't actually do that until the last six no months quests, of development. No boss fights. No, no, no quests. Yeah, this is, this is just like what's in the world and what can the player make, right? Um, and after that first, it took over a year to make that first zone. And then the next zone was three months. And then the next zone was three months. Mm -hmm. Right, because all the hard questions are at the beginning where you just keep rebuilding the same stuff over and over again. And then when you get some kind of a new you know, new insight about, oh, right, that's why this feels bad or, oh, this right. is what's missing. Then you top to bottom, like rebuild that whole thing. And then pretty soon, you you know, once you have done that enough times and you've built enough tools and systems and stuff to really be able to see and intuitively understand what's fun and engaging and interesting about right. it. What's the shape of that design and how does that morph over time and how does it repeat itself over time, basically? Yeah. Then from there, you can just extrapolate. Like the, the hard questions are answered um, and now you can now you can make the next zone and you can have that branch off of what you had before and have new kinds of things for the player to do, but that are still, you know, within the, the, the concepts laid down at the beginning, mm -hmm. right? Um, and that, that's kind of the, it's the difference between uh, the idea of like a systems development phase of a game and then a content push phase where once you, once you know what, how things work, how they fit together, then you can just make stuff, right? And this is something that um, like we were talking about earlier in the week about when we worked on a game changer, a big reason to do it was to say it should be easy to add something. Like once we know that we want something, it should just be like, boom, it's in there now. Right. And uh, with the with the original Crashlands, everything was equally fairly expensive to add. Um, and so we had to have like a pretty good reason to, to add something. Right. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to Crashlands 2, we've been talking about like, OK, let's say we've got something out in the world that like does some electrical damage to the player. Right. Um, well, we know that that once the player encounters that, some players are going to be like, man, I just kind of like want to take less electrical damage, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, from this thing. Uh, then we could get a, a trinket in there that that has some kind of electrical resistance on it. And it would take us 20 minutes start to finish to get that trinket added to the game. Mm -hmm. You know, now, now, now that we can, now that we understand that and we can kind of see how it all fits together and stuff. But even prior to just this past couple of weeks before we had the progression map, um, it would have taken us like a whole ass day to figure out how that thing was going to fit and like what it was going to be made of and, and when the player was going to get it. And, you know, again, it's all about the sequence of things, right? Yeah. Again, um, this is, it's mainly, a, it's a bigger problem for us in Crashlands because of the nature of Crashlands, which is that stuff is made out of actual things in the world, which isn't the case in a lot of games, right? Uh, yeah. So it matters where you put that, that damn trinket in the progression path because, it has to be made of things. It's sort of like a core piece of the game. It's like everything is everything exists sort of in relationship to each other. You don't yeah. just have like a, a weapon dropping out of the sky that's made of just whatever random video game parts, right? It's yeah, like and it's made is, of stones that you've harvested. You know, and so, something that I've been um, really kind of like enthralled by and kind of pumped about is so I've been playing the new WoW expansion, Dragonflight, and professions are a big, big thing 
in this uh, version of the game and professions. And this is like you declare, you know, oh, my character is a blacksmith or something. And you can make, you know, plate armor and, and weapons for other players. And the uh, question is, well, what are you making it out of? Well, you can become a miner as well and you can go out in the world and like collect different ores and then, you know, refine them. And you can also go find like special magical materials that are used to make them. But ultimately, um, none of the items that you make visually have anything to do. They don't have anything to do with the components that go into them. Mm -hmm. Um, So really it's more about just the economics of treating the different resources that you're, that you're crafting with like currencies that just kind of have a, you know, valves that just like release them into the player's inventory over time. Like there's like mm-hmm. two different kinds of ore that have different levels of rarity. And there's like four different kinds of magic things that you can get from all over the place. Right? And the thing is like, that's, that's good because it decouples these two departments essentially in terms of the content, right? You don't right. have to be like, what, wait, we cannot actually do the art for this until we know where it sits in the progression flow. But it's exactly. a very different thing in a crafting game, I guess, for, for our purposes in the case of crashes, That's what, one of the things that's in the original that we've chosen to keep pulling forward is the sense that everything is made from the world's parts, right? Which is actually a very expensive decision. <laughs> well, it, it, I'd say it it's expensive in, until it's not, right? Because... Because up until now, it has been super expensive to add anything to the game because uh, even even though we have the game changer, which allows us to easily add something once we know what it is, yeah. um, we still didn't have the map. We didn't have the progression map that allowed us to see exactly how things fit together. And so uh, now that we do have that, it's not it's not that hard to just say, all right, we want a new trinket. Uh, it's going to be at about like this point in the player's progress, what materials do we have available? All right, let's just make it out of these three things. What do they look like? Okay, now we can kind of bring those, you know, colors and motifs into the visuals of the trinket, right? But without that secondary tool, without the progression map, yeah, it's like almost impossible to <laughs> to think of how to fit these things together. Um, but for, for me, it's been, it's been pretty wild because these past couple of weeks have really kind of demonstrated that um, that you can that you can't ever solve a problem. You can only uh, make different problems. Like you can you can have Choose different, different problems. Problem. Yeah, yeah. So, or rather, you can solve a problem. That doesn't mean that your problems are solved. You just have yes. different ones now, right? And so, so yeah, the game changer was us saying let's let's look at our bottlenecks, and our big bottleneck is programming when it comes to adding stuff to the game. Mm-hmm. How do we how do we make it so that we don't have to use a ton of programming time and resources to add things? It should be trivial to add things, right? Um, and we knew, and we had talked about this uh, over the course of this past year, we knew that that would mean that our, our bottleneck would move to design. Mm-hmm. Uh, as in, once it's easy to add something, the hard thing is deciding what to add, mm-hmm. right? But for whatever reason, it didn't quite click until these past couple of weeks that that's just, that's also a tooling problem, right? Uh, uh, if it's hard to design, if it's hard to make decisions about what's going to go into the game, it's because there's something that we can't see. Mm-hmm. There's something that we don't have, there's information we don't have access to uh, that's creating a, a bottleneck there, Right. And so quite uh, interestingly, I would say, now that, we, now that we've got this tool, all that I've done over the past couple of weeks is just make more and more tools. 
Uh, and I've been, I've been like adding tons and tons of new things for uh, Sam and Jen to use because now that they can see what what they need to do, they're moving super fast and they're bumping up against all kinds of limitations that previously they weren't able to bump into because they weren't able to move fast yeah. enough, right? Yeah, and so I, and I, I do feel like this is a common problem that you see because there's there's a certain amount of progression that you can get out of a, any particular game idea where things still feel good, right? But then there's there's always this. Um, it's very hard to know how to continue. I think how to continue forward from a given position if you can't really if you can't really see, right? If you can't see what's going to happen and. In a lot of games, it's it's just the case that like, you know, we're working on even like level head or whatever else. There's these key moments where until we had certain things suddenly made visible, you you sort of hit the end. There's some mental bandwidth basically you cannot really meaningfully go beyond. So I think that's kind of the point for me for any designers listening or any uh, people on game teams, which is like if, if it seems like progress is kind of stalling out a bit on like meaningful progress on moving moving the game to that next uh, tier of playtime or even like the next milestone. It, if you can identify where it's coming from, it's probably the case that there's some inability to just to see what the fuck is happening that makes it so hard to think about uh, what to do next that you essentially cannot decide what to do next. Or if you do that, it's so fraught or takes so much time that you end up just sort of like spinning around in that space, right? Because you make the decision and then you then it's wrong and you have to remake it and whatever else. Uh, and so it's it feels like it's always a signal, you know, to um, to see if there's a place to bump up the visibility of what you're Yeah, I think this also uh, sort of reveals the uh, kind of incorrectness of the model that there's like a bottleneck, right? Because it isn't really the case that because like the game changer made it easier to put stuff in the game that 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 allowed people to go faster than bump up against this bottleneck that wasn't there previously, right? Because it was the same problem already existed. It was already really hard to design stuff. You already couldn't see the full context yep. to figure out like where the design should go, right? It was just that you had enough time because you couldn't get the thing in the game anyway, right? that it didn't feel bad from a production standpoint because you were like, well, I can't get something in. So it's okay that like my life kind of sucks and I don't really know what to do. And this is really hard. Right. But the reality is, is that that was always true. And I think this is why, this is why I prefer to focus on the cognitive load problem, right. Of, because everyone, no matter what your work is, no matter who, no matter how it fits into the network of all the things that work together, right. Your actual moment to moment work is some combination of the, problems you're trying to solve and the tools that you have to expose all the components at the right time to make it so that you can do that. And mm-hmm. how hard that is, is basically a function of like, it's cognitive load. It's, it's, can you see the stuff, how, how big and elaborate and accurate does your own mental model need to be to get that job done? Right. Mm-hmm. And while getting everybody on the team and all the different roles into a position where their mental model can be constructed really fast and it's being supplemented by stuff that they can go easily just go see the right stuff at the right time to make the decisions they need to make. Then even if, cause it, cause the bottleneck of production is, you know, comes from basically how these things all talk to each other. Right. Mm-hmm. And how enabled you are to the, you know, move from one part of the network of interacting things to the next. But the, but the process of actually doing that work, which is what we all actually experience, you know, day to day and minute by minute. Mm-hmm is the cognitive load problem. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. I think, yeah, I think it's when you relieve a bottleneck, then what you've actually done is is made it so that the cognitive load that somebody else is already experiencing now becomes also a production problem, 
Right. And so previously they, things were moving slow enough that even though it was hard to think about, they had enough time to think about mm-hmm. it I because see, right, right. Yep. they didn't have anything else to do. Yeah, but that doesn't mean <laughs> that that was good. It doesn't mean that that was, that they were having a good time doing that. And it doesn't, because the fact is like, because we're describing this stuff, the, the reality is that each of these components of the network of the work has gotten so much better, right? If you think about quality, not about actual like productive capacity, right? But just about the quality of the output and then the quality of like the time spent, you know, building it. Like that's the stuff that is for everybody continue just to get better and better and better and better and better, right? And so while it is, sure, it's true that like the production bottleneck keeps on bouncing around, right? <laughs> In terms of like how stuff actually makes it out eventually, right? Everyone's experience across the board and the quality of the output that everybody is making is just is just shooting up and keeps yeah, well, on you're going. Getting, you're right? getting closer to basically being able to move from initial design concept to a delivered thing mm-hmm. that is the correct thing yeah. the first time, right? And if it's not, then all the tooling exists such that you could you could tell basically really, really quickly and then you could get it iterated on so that mm-hmm. it is the correct thing. And then even better, once you've done that a bunch, once you realize, again, like the, the, all these things have echoes. And so you start, you feel out the next shape of the overall arching design for the thing as you're building out more content. Once you hit that point, then you could say, oh, I see what the shape is now. And then you walk backward bum, 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 mm-hmm. and you tune everything into that kind of new to, to better work with that shape right yeah and that's the sort of thing like but think about how much easier it is now like now that you have these tools with this you know this new view this way of viewing how stuff oh yeah person the game right and think but about the thing like, is, like what does it mean to redo that work now versus what it meant to redo that work in october right and oh yeah yeah and it's 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 both of those things because now the mental model you need to construct to be able to do it is so much tinier because the model exists out in the world in a way that you can grok and explore. Like, and you can get when you have a question about the model, the answer is there. You can just go grab it, right? Mm-hmm. And so, what that's enabling you to do is construct a, just a much more accurate design in the first place, right? Of like what happens yeah. next, much more easily and much more fun and with the just higher quality. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's Good. it's been a while, and, and there's been also several kind of like aha moments that, I, that you know, in retrospect, it's like duh. But um, you know, when we first put up the the progression map, it was basically it was, it was pretty rudimentary in terms of. You know, not everything was hooked into it, and it was kind of like, is this a good thing to keep working yeah, on, right? right? Um, but one of the things that was kind of a weird sticking point was the problem of of quests, because quests can do all kinds of things, um, including they can give you items, and they mm-hmm. can demand that you have items, or they can demand that you've done something. And, and quests uh, have multiple states where... You know, you you first talk to somebody or whatever, you start the quest, and now the quest is active. And then some amount of time will pass, right? Could be a long time, or it could just instantly end right there and you move on, right? And then there could be a quest that starts the moment you hit the game that doesn't end until you beat the final boss. Yeah. And it might be an invisible quest in the background, even that you don't even see in your quest log, right? It's just something that we're using to kind of like as a logic node for other quests or something. Um, So quests can, can do all kinds of things. um, And then they also can, can hook into other requirements where, for example, you can have a, you can have a quest that that can only be started if if you're currently on another quest. Mm -hmm. But once you're done with that quest, you can't do it anymore. Right. Mm -hmm. And all this weird stuff. Um, And 
when we first put together the, the progression map, quests, because in our, in our mind, like a quest is a, it's a thing. It's one thing, right? Then we kept having this, this problem in the progression map where a quest existed in one spot on the progression map. Um, and eventually we ran into problems where quests kept creating infinite loops. Because for example, a quest may start where at the start of the quest, somebody gives you uh, a, a recipe. A recipe. Mm-hmm. And the quest will end once you've crafted that thing. And then they'll have something to say about it. So this item both comes from and is required for that quest, which means you've got an infinite loop and we don't know what the hell to do, right? Um, And so this was one of those kind of aha moments where, oh, yeah, a quest is actually two different things. A quest is a start point and an end point. And those those actually are oftentimes in very different places on the uh, in the, in the progression map with a bunch of stuff in between right and so uh, you know once you can see stuff laid out then you start to get a better sense of how your human brain is sort of bundling things together or categorizing things in a way that is actually not accurate it's like yeah. not actually true to how the game works and what the player is going to be oh, and even if it is accurate it still may be increasing your cognitive load because there's another also accurate way, right, of like modeling it that allows you to now fit this new model into a context that's easier for you to collectively understand and work with. And I think because I think that to me, like that's what so much of like doing programming is about or or like trying to figure out how the world works from a statistical standpoint or something if you're doing experiments, right? It's always like it's basically taking the model that you have and figuring out a new way to model that exact same thing, mm-hmm. but in a way that allows you to get handholds on it so you can do stuff and you can ask questions, right? Um, and I think that's so much of what this stuff actually is, is the discovery that... And I think the, 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 the trick here, especially with like games, right, is because games, you're modeling fairly tangible concepts. Because even the idea of like a quest feels very tangible, even though it's pretty abstract also, right? But like, it feels tangible. And the more like the more natural that concept is that you're modeling in terms of like you already have a human sort of construct associated with it, the harder it is to see how you could change how you're thinking about it and change how you're modeling it so that you can interact with it more easily because it's so hard to get away from the idea that, you know, a rock is a rock, right? When Mm -hmm. the reality in the game context is, well, the rock is this like data payload with these sets of interactions and then this like graphical uh, inspection, right? To the point where like the idea of like an inventory item and a thing in the world can actually become the same thing because of this like overlap between them, right? Um, It's it's just like really funny, you know, work, whenever you work on a game for for long enough, which I think it's, it feels like it's about maybe like three months or so. It feels like after you work on a game for about three months, at least I know for me personally, then your ability to trust that you even understand uh, the experiential part of it starts to kind of drift a little bit. You get a little, I'm very suspicious basically of myself at this point in terms of is the experience that I'm having with this, what a player will have, like, how can I, how can I get close to that? Because while it is true at the end of the day that you're making these bits and pieces of stuff that are concrete, right? The thing that you're trying to get is completely abstract. And I think that's, that's the, it's not like a, it's not, it's not like a tool where you're saying, okay, yeah, can I use, I don't know, like I said, Pickaxe is a fun example. Can I use this tool to efficiently get some like ore out of the ground, right? In the real world, the real terms. That's a it's like a yes or a no sort of a thing. And there's like an improvement piece to it. In the in the case of like, you know, any kind of I think more creative media in particular, you're trying to ask, like, okay, here's all these concrete things that I'm doing that's supposed to enable 
what is a invisible internal experience for people, right? Yeah. I'm and measuring is this, that. Is this going to feel good for the player yeah. to do this? But feeling good yeah. can also include feeling bad in certain kinds of ways. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so like, what is it? Is this going too fast? But is it also too slow? Like, what's the, you know, all this, all these different situational things. And I think it's just like, a, I mean, it's just a trip because you start, especially when you're iterating and iterating on these things, you know, you're playing the same content over and over again. And if people were wondering, like, why do video games take so long to make? Like, the, it is true, like, of course, if you're making something at scale, like, it does take a long time to make any one of the pieces of it. But that usually isn't the fucking problem. The problem is not, like... The bricks, like a number of bricks required to make the damn building. It's just like it's how what? it all comes together. Yeah. Well, this, how this is a good this is a good segue actually because because we do have a question Go. about this. Uh, this question comes from Fraser uh, from over at uh, Podcast Up. He sketched on it. Fraser asks, "How do you estimate timelines in game development?" Mm. <laughs> yeah, the only good solution is to not do that. You yeah, can yeah. dictate timelines, right? As in you can say, this, something has to happen. We have a deliverable or whatever by this date, right? And and usually it's going to be some, ideally that should be some kind of an external constraint, like we run out of money or a publisher required it or whatever, right? Um, or we just, you know, it's usually money driven. It's just like, if we don't get this game out by X, we just don't have money left, right? Mm -hmm. But that's not an estimate. That's an external Requirement. requirement. Yeah. And I think this is where, I think this is where like the whole idea of like estimating how long something is going to take is that's the wrong direction to take it. Right. Because it should be the opposite, which is here's how long we have. What can we do in that time? Right. Yes. And, and that as you get closer to a deadline, you continue to reevaluate to figure out what you need to change or pair back or, or whatever. So that you also have that answer to the fundamental question of like, what at root fundamentally has to happen, right? If mm -hmm. if our deliverable to a publisher is due here in like 60 days, right? What is the absolute minimum thing that has to be able to land on their desk, right? For that goal. Because that doesn't necessarily mean like you need the completed game. It doesn't necessarily mean you even need a good experience, right? As long as you've got like a golden path. And there might be some shortcuts you can take. There might be some interaction with them as a person where you can say, Hey, this isn't hey, where this we want it to be. It's janky as fuck. Yeah. So <laughs> now maybe you can cut back on like making sure it all works, right? Or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Because the question is just like, again, what what actually has to happen by then? And then given that time, how do we get that to happen? That whatever that thing is. Um, and doing it that direction is also what allows you to avoid horrible crunch. It also allows you to keep things from getting inflated at scale, right? Well, um, it can allow you to it do can, those things. Yeah. Yeah, I think largely it is what causes crunch because people don't uh, – you don't use the deadline to update the design or the vision. Yeah, it requires that part. You have to be able to change yeah. what the – that's also why we treat things as like we have finite time. We've got the hours we expect from everybody per day for work, right? And that means that if we say like – well, by this date, we need to have X happen. That, that doesn't mean we have to figure out how to put enough hours in that we get that outcome. Right. It means that given the hours that we have out. available, <laughs> yeah, how do we how do we get something that satisfies that goal? Yeah. And, uh, and, and it's it's a good decision metric to think about uh, once you have once you have your timeline and your goal, then what else can you can you fit in there? Like, how do you adjust the design of the game and what is it you're trying to make uh, such that you can also get some other long term benefit out of that time? So like what we've been doing with Crashlands 2 is is. We straight up gave ourselves, we we're like, we want to give ourselves three to four years to work on Crashlands 2, mm -hmm. you know? So like we want to give ourselves a lot of time because 
we've got some questions. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we want to we want to do some experiments with multiplayer. We want to you know put together a huge game design document and see because we've never really done that. Uh, we want to put together a huge game design document and see if we can do some experiments with pre production, do some experiments with visuals, try some new tools. So we you know we switched over to Spine. Mm-hmm. Um, we want to fundamentally change the entire way that work flows in the studio. We're going to add mm-hmm. more people in. Yeah, we yeah we want to be able to scale things up, right? And and so you know we definitely definitely could have made Crashlands two in under two years. A, a Crashlands two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, not the current to, one though. But actually- if yeah, if we had decided to do that, then what we would have done along the way would be completely different from yep. what we're currently doing, which is mm-hmm. we would have stuck with the tools that we had. Uh, we would have stuck with a lot of the design models that we had had before. We wouldn't have done our we wouldn't have done things that we weren't sure whether they were going to work out, right? We wouldn't have done our multiplayer exper- experiment. Mm-hmm. Um, it would have been a lot more of like sort of a, a copy paste of existing yeah, design this, paradigms. I would call this know? Crashlands again, not Crashlands two, right? Um, yeah, Crashlands comma T O O. Yeah, continued. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, is it is it meaningfully building on the stuff? That you had in the first, well, of course, maintaining as much of the design paradigm as, as you need to, but is it, is it maintaining or is it building on the spiritual concept that's yeah. like baked in there, or is it just literally more? And it's not necessarily bad. Again, it's like not, not bad at all to have like just mainly more, depends on where you're at, what you need. Yeah, well, I think it's it's like timelines and like this discussion also, it, it highlights the, the question of just long term versus short term and where your time should be going, what's, what's valuable, right? Um, and I think from a long-term standpoint, the thing that is always the most valuable is for people to have the opportunity to try stuff, experiment, have things go wrong, you know, right? Uh, and Because I think when you say, here's how it has to be done and we need it done by this time, right? The removal of any room for flexibility there of like discovering, oh, shit, there's a better way or the people involved – uh, developing new knowledge and skills because they got to explore spaces around this this problem, right? Every time you remove an opportunity for that, then you're cutting out enormous long-term gains from because these 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 investments up front that build on each other make it so that each person involved with the process, like if you think about the the stuff that Sam can do now because of his exploration of like clip studio paint and new ways of doing art, and and he t- he's took time on studio time like doing art courses and stuff right um to like learn new ways of thinking about stuff and then we took time to then build pipelines around the workflow he ended up with right and if we hadn't done all of that and if sam hadn't done all of that then his ability to produce the kind of art that he's now producing just wouldn't be there right it would still be good because like at minimum it would be like crashland og crashlands right but right, but we've moved into this like whole new world of like the cool shit that can come out of that and how fast it comes out and what the process looks like and how it intersects with the rest of development. And just none of that would have happened. Yeah. Well, and, and even even more interestingly, we think about level head. Because level head felt like it happened pretty fast. Like with as much a two year as, project. It was so it, it was it a two is, year yeah. project, but when did we start working on it? You know, two years after we launched Crashlands. Yeah. Because what happened in the meantime was lots of R&D. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, lots of trying to figure out how to do stuff. How do we how do we maintain a game like Crashlands um, uh, with an existing player base? Is that even the right thing to do, you know, financially from a business perspective? How do we scale up the studio? We developed Rumpus in, for a... Uh, over a year, I think, prior to Levelhead even 
starting development. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, and we had several game prototypes and projects that we were experimenting on all throughout 2017. Mm -hmm. Um, none of which ended up being level head, but, uh, but all of which informed a lot about stuff that we needed to do going forward to make level head possible. Right. So it's kind of weird because, you know, essentially level head was over a three year, like project. We just didn't know it for the first yeah, course, year. Yeah. Right. Uh, cause we, we were doing a bunch of tools development and, and all that stuff that made level head possible. Well, with crash hits too, we're, we're doing this, you know, more purposefully where that kind of development is happening in service of something that we know we want to make, which is Crashlands 2. Well, this right? is another answer to the question of like, how is it that you can look at a game, you start playing a game and like, the, like you really like the design decisions, you can see why they did everything like, oh, this all makes sense. And you look at it and you're like, it seems like just anybody could re could like make this, you know, because like mm -hmm. you can, you feel like you can summarize, like here's the design, here's how it all works, here's how it all comes together, right? And you can do this with pretty complicated games, right? And so the question is then why aren't there? you know, a hundred breaths of the wild, breath of the wilds, whatever, right? Why aren't there? I mean, there's not even two, right? I guess there's a second one coming out, but there aren't even two games that like hit that in that particular way that give that impact on the player, right? Uh, what did it take to make that game actually, right? Well, it took 20 years of a Zelda franchise, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Plus the institutional knowledge of the Nintendo staff, right? And all of their contract, like all the people that are associated Frankly, with these things, right? Probably an insane amount of hardware uh, tech. Oh, absolutely. Fuckery yeah. because all of the, yeah, all switch, the stuff. Yeah. Is, you know, yeah. It took an garbage. enormous amount of background stuff that actually you would, it would be reasonable to like at first blush think, well, that's just a different thing. Cause the real thing is just like you sit down, you design the game, and you make it right with the tools available, right? Mm -hmm. But that's discounting all of the, institutional knowledge and skill that lives in the people and in the tools and in this and in the organizational structures that come together to make these things because these don't live in a vacuum you know mm -hmm. and the reason these are hard isn't because of like the specific details of the thing it's that with any large-scale project it has to come from the net capability and knowledge and organizational structure of the context that it comes out of and having something really complicated. That's also good. It's hard as fuck is, <laughs> is so fucking hard because again, yeah. it's not because it's like the hindsight part is easier. You can just look at it and be like, Oh yeah, well like they designed this this way because X happens and so on. Right. But if you, cause if you like when Crashlands two comes out and we're, if people are playing it and if it goes as well as we all is that we think it will, there'll be people looking at it being like, Oh, this is really cool. Like I see what they did here, like why they did this. Right. And the things that they're looking at right now that look like obviously the best move, right. The, the, obviously the thing that we should have done might be stuff that we didn't even realize we should do or did, but didn't have the capability to do right. Mm -hmm. Until a year and a half into the project where like that fact then like causes us to be like, Oh, and then restructure the whole thing again. Right. Mm -hmm. So that the net effect that you see, that's the whole tip of the iceberg idea. Right. It's like, yeah, the thing it's just so easy to use your hindsight and say like obviously. obviously. Well, that's also why that's also why you know we're generally playing things pretty close to the vest when it comes to actually showing Crashlands too because um, you know I'm I'm confident that that six months from now the starting player experience will be one hundred percent different. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah. than it is right now <laughs> because yeah. I mean even <laughs> we were just talking this morning. Uh, 
with the tools that we've gotten over this past couple of weeks, there's there's like a 40, 40 minute section of the new player experience that is now like five minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and it and it's so much punchier and funnier and it's more clear what it is that's happening, what the player has to do. And and, you know, before we were like, yeah, this is good. Right. And the thing is, it was as good as we could have conceived of doing it, given what we had available to us, right? Um, now that we've got better tools and we can we can do more with them, uh, we took that long drawn out thing and we just made it way better and way punchier. And now you're just like right into the action and having a much better time, much faster, right? So we'll extrapolate that, you know, that across everything in the game, stuff that was kind of confusing, kind of drawn out, kind of long, kind of hard to understand as a player, whatever. Um, and just, it just gets 10 times better. Right. Uh, and you just do that multiple times throughout development and you can see why you'd be hesitant to show somebody the game kind of at any point until, <laughs> until it's about to be released. Right. Yeah. Uh, because at that point, it's and also like at that point, you could still be making those changes, but you have to stop working on it at some point so you can sell it and you know. Well, I think it was wasn't it last not this past summer, but the summer before that we were doing a whole bunch of really active biz dev on it. We we're trying to show the game to people. That was two summers ago. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Uh, and that was that was when I was like really trying to push that stuff um, so that Sam and Seth could keep on. As in, like things. in the first uh, six months of yeah development. Yeah, or it was after we, the first, yeah, it was the first six months of like really active development after the first, because yeah. it started. We basically gotten the art style to a point where we were like, I think this is basically where it's at. And mm-hmm. we had build mode. We had, we had like a creature. Yeah. Know? A whole bunch so of like those core, like interactive experiences were You could there, see it. Right. You could see it. You basically, could tell it was going to yeah. go on. But I, even at that time when it was still really hard to do all of this stuff um, and iteration was really slow and costly, right? It was still the case at that point that things changed so fast that when I was doing like active biz dev, um, I was really hesitant to actually send people uh, like a video, right? Because I'd look at the video that we had that Sam had made like the prior week and I would look at the game now a week later and be like, oh, that's that's already missing so much stuff, right? (laughs) And then I'd also know what was coming up the following week and be like, oh, but if we just wait, it'll be so much more compelling, you know? And, uh, and that's true, right? And they're trying to find that time to, to actually show it to people because of this fact that it's just the whole process is this long iterative thing because of the whole intangibleness of the experiential aspect of playing a game. It doesn't matter how clever you are uh, as a designer, right? And how good your taste is and how good your design sense is. Because the reality is that until you've actually experienced it in the context of the whole thing and the context of a whole game is fucking enormous that you can't hold it in your brain. It's just not possible. The only thing you can do is experience it sort of holistically as just as a person, you know, you can't actually reason your way all the way through it. One of my favorite things seeing in like, uh, after a, a game comes out and does really well is usually if they interview the, some of the devs on it or the game director or whatever, there's always a sense from the game director or core content team or whatever, where they're like, yeah, honestly, it didn't one, it didn't come together until, Close to the end. That's like a very common thing. Yeah, always. Uh, I know there's literally like the God of War Ragnarok team said that about this new one that just came out. Well, and I, yeah, I, was, I saw some articles where, where, where so many people were hearing about the fact that the God of War Ragnarok team was like really apprehensive about whether they had made something in, that was even any that good. Even good. Yes. And, and all the players are like, really? Like, really? You guys couldn't... <laughs> tell and it's like yeah really like yeah, you really can't like, fucking because tell. because honestly probably probably that game sucked ass until yeah. like six months before 
before you launch, have, yep. <laughs> right? Like yeah, it's just how it point, goes. <laughs> they'd all been working on it so hard and for so long, and their mental models had been like rebuilt and destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed over and over and over again, right? Mm-hmm. To the point where that because you get sort of towards that point, and you just you really cannot tell. You just no, you become like a weird nihilist. Where yeah. you're like I everything I, sucks what is now. good. Yep. Yeah, I don't know what's good. Nobody knows what's good, and uh, I just need to rearrange these nodes, you know, sort of thing. And yeah, we even well, saw man. that with Elden Ring. The guy said they asked the director, and he was like, "Honestly, I don't know why it did so well." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, I saw that. Yeah, he, yeah, because yeah, people were asking him, you know, are they going to make follow-on games? He's like, "Oh yeah, of course. Like, yeah, we'll make we'll make more, but don't expect." you know, them to be anywhere near as popular or successful as Elden Ring because, like, we don't know why the fuck that happened. Yeah. Like, it's like, we didn't do anything that different from what we've done in the well, past. Well, that's actually a really important because like, like, <laughs> that's something we talked about a lot, too, in the past is the survivorship bias problem, especially in the yes. indie space, right? But it is true through AAA as well, where... And AAA, it's different because success does cause future success when success is big enough, right? But it also can create a tower that can really fall if you if you fuck it up well enough, right? Yeah. Uh, but otherwise, like it is, it is the case. Like, I mean, famously, Steam, like Steam's whole thing back because back in the olden days of Steam, like they put out twelve games a year on on the Steam. And you service, would like right? send your game to their publishing team and say, can my game go on Steam? And, and they they'd would say and no. Evaluate it and <laughs> right. say no. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and like and there's almost nothing there and it was only from really big publishers, right? And they started to kind of like squirt out some like interesting indie titles, right? But it was still going through this process. And – but over time, they started like – they had a better content team. They started to add kind of more and more stuff because they were like, oh, this is a cash cow once we start to you know, put games through here. But – they were trying to pick winners, right? They were trying to like look at all the things that were coming to them and trying to say, okay, we think this one will do well, so we'll put this one in because their goal was to say, as a platform, you can just come here and buy a game. It's going to be fucking great, right? And as they started to actually add more content and went beyond just you know a dozen a year or whatever, they very quickly discovered we can't guess what's going to do well. Like we thought this mm-hmm. was going to be great and nobody bought it. And this other one we were it. kind of wishy-washy about and it went crazy. Yeah. Like, they, can't, no they couldn't tell. And so that that was then their impetus for Steam Greenlight, which at the time was to say, okay, let's see if we can – let's see if like – because it's, it's the people who decide if the game is, is popular because they're who make it popular. Mm-hmm. So what if we can pre, pre-check with the people, right, so mm-hmm. that we still only let in winners, right? It's like Kickstarter. Yeah, it's it's like Kickstarter, yeah. But we let in the ones that the that people have chosen. That way it's already people, – people have already passed judgment and now we know it will be a hit, right? So they did that. It wasn't even very long. It was maybe three years or something. That it wasn't. It just really wasn't that long. It was during Crashlands we did a yeah, Crashlands. Yeah, because yeah, we had a really successful Greenlight campaign. Um, and then still during that though, then these games actually came out, right? And it was the same deal, right? It was just mm-hmm. some of them were hits, some of them were not. And some things didn't get through stream green light the first time, but then did the second time and then were a hit. Like it was just complete yep. unpredictable chaos. And then so finally Steam was like, fuck it. We fuck don't, it. yeah, fuck <laughs> it. We can't guess. So we're going to just let everything on here and then we're going to try to algorithmically boost stuff that seems to be catching people's attention. And that became the model because they just couldn't guess, right? Yeah. And so this whole idea, like, it is so easy in retrospect to look at a really successful title and say, oh, here's why it was successful, right? Yeah. But there's a reason why most indies who make a really popular title don't make a second popular one, right? Even if you could look back and say, here's why the first one was successful, right? It's because the fact is you can't. You can come up with – we call them just so stories in, in science, right, where it's like mm. – 
you just like can construct a nice little narrative about about how that came to be and be like, look, you could just like draw these perfect lines like this event happened, this event happened, and then the design, they decided to go this way, whatever, mm-hmm. right? But that isn't how reality just actually a story. is. That's cool. just and a story. I would say, indies are notoriously uh, anti sequel, I guess I would say. Yeah, that's also true. I mean, we <laughs> right. were, yeah. Yep. We were yeah, because the thing is like, like if Super Meat Boy 2 came out, I'd be on it. If FTL yep. 2 came out, I would be on it. Yeah, but yep, the, absolutely. Those things did not happen, right? Instead, like nothing happened with Super Meat Boy. We saw a bunch of like prototype projects that Ed McMillan was working on. And then I think there was like- a, Binding of Isaac. That was the one that- yeah, Binding of Isaac. Yeah. bigger, yeah. yeah. Yeah, which did well, but then no Binding of Isaac 2, right? Like Indies love to- like, Oh, no, there's, they've done, they, but I think he didn't make it. I think he gave it to like Nicholas or something, one of the other- uh, development teams to basically make like the future versions. So mm. he didn't, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah he's yeah. like, I'm done. He, yeah, yeah. I don't want to make another one. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah, <laughs> a, lot, a lot of indie developers, like, you know, they got into it cause they're like, yeah, I just like, I'm just, I like making games and I like doing weird, new, interesting things. And, you know, making sequels doesn't really, you know, doesn't really jive with that. Um, but yeah, like I, I would have loved, I think to me, FTL is kind of the big one because yeah, they, totally. FTL, you know, it's spaceship rogue, like nothing else like it out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's and just so good. Just it's so good. Yeah. And like, and there are so many cool new places they could have taken that concept. Um, but then they made Into the Breach, which is almost like an XCOM, like tactical mm-hmm. mech battling strategy which is, game. It's very thing. cool. But it's not great. Yeah. It's good. Mm-hmm. Completely different. And then of course we did the same thing, right? Yeah. Like we made Levelhead. Like we had Crashlands. Mm-hmm. Everybody's like, yeah, Crashlands. When's Crashlands 2 coming out? And we're like, never. <laughs> <laughs> and then we just went and made a platformer thing. Um, and then Hades you know, 2 Hades got announced Game Awards last night. Yeah. And I was like, good. Yes. And that's yes. their that's their first sequel, right? It's their first sequel. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, exactly. yeah, yeah. good. And the yeah, world but, is fucking just jazzed about it, right? Oh, yeah. Because yeah. people want so more People want more of a thing that they're confident is going to be great, right? Yep. And like it's hard every- enough to find a good thing. You know what I mean? I just watched Wednesday on Netflix, and it's so good. If you haven't watched, watch it. But I, like, I had a blast. It was very fun. It's the same deal where I'm like, this is so good. I just want – if there was a second one, I would oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Did you Did you watch the whole season? Watching. I did. It's very good. Yeah, the at the end it kind of gets messy in my opinion, like because it kind of felt like they were like, oh, we have all these threads and we now need to tie them all together, and they just kind of like, I mean, they, they got forced it, yeah. some a little bit. They got they got more seasons. But it was still it was fun, cool. and the first up until like the so very end, they tried to tie it all together really fast. It was purely just I just had a fucking great time yeah. all the way through. It's a rare show. Yeah. yeah, it's hard to find a thing that is good. That's the truth. Which also means it's very hard to make a thing that's good. It's hard you to know? make a thing that's good. Yeah, and this is why, and it's like, hard to know that it's good while you're making it. Yeah, yeah. And, it's, and it's hard to marry that desire, like as a as a as a consumer, you're like, I want season two, I want the sequel, I want the next thing, and then as a creator, you're like, but I'm bored, I'm not, gonna, <laughs> I'm not gonna make yeah. the next thing. <laughs> so yeah, you, know, you got to kind of get over that and give the people what they want, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyways, we are out of time. Yeah, let's go. Uh, so thanks for the question, Fraser. Uh, we'd like to thank our producers, Fat Bard and Sampa da Costa, for putting the podcast together, and thanks to our community moderators who keep our Discord running. To get more involved in the Butterscotch community, go to podcast.bscotch.net, where we have links to the Discord, a way for you to donate, and links to the archives. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.